Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1285. Interview number 22 with Jim Diogenio about uh, JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on January 27th of the year 2023. And once again, it is my pleasure and my great privilege to introduce, to bring back to our audience, Jim Diogenio, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed, and also JFK Revisited the book, that accompanies the documentary done by Oliver Stone. And uh, Mr. Stone selected Jim Eugenio to write the screenplay for that interview. Jim, welcome back once again to our airwaves. Good evening, Dave. Nice to be here. Uh, tonight uh, and, and the two interviews we are going to do are going to be, I, I believe, for most people, groundbreaking. Uh, we will be talking about a subject that does get some treatment in JFK Revisited, but we are going to be expanding enormously on that. Uh, Jim has written a four-part essay on uh, not only JFK's, but the Kennedy brothers' civil rights policies. And it is, frankly a masterpiece, and I think you deserve uh, a tremendous amount of credit for doing it, Jim. And, and I hope my characterization of your work as a masterpiece is not embarrassing to you, but it is deserved. Uh, I'm going to uh, play spoiler here to a small extent, and what I'm going to talk about is the overall significance of JFK's civil rights policies. And as you point out in the essays, uh, JFK and with his brother's assistance did more in a little under three years than all of his, actually I'll read it verbatim, the Kennedy administration did more to advance civil rights in three years than the prior 18, parenthetically, administrations did in nearly a century. This is simply a matter of record. And what you have very clearly and uh, uh, in, in a very detailed manner is to chronicle that uh, assertion. Uh, it will, I think, appear to be perhaps an exaggeration to some people. It will certainly appear to many people, as it did to an extent, to yours truly, uh, to be a revelation. Once again, the Kennedy administration did more to advance civil rights in three years than the prior 18 did in nearly a century. This is simply a matter of record. Yes, it is. And uh, thankfully, Jim, you have uh, brought that record to our attention in this masterful series of essays on Kennedy'sandKing.com, your website. Now, the subject of the Kennedy's uh, civil rights policies is touched on 
in JFK Revisited, uh, Martin Luther King, this footage of Martin Luther King speaking uh, very compliment, in a very complimentary fashion about what the Kennedy brothers had done. But you go way, way, way beyond what is in the film. Uh, why don't we begin, Jim, with a synoptic account of what took place in the immediate aftermath of the American Civil War with Reconstruction, because I don't think many people are aware of the details of what exactly took place. If you could uh, chronicle for us perhaps uh, uh, compressing things as need be about the Redeemers and what they did in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. You know, a good way to begin that discussion is that Ken Burns did not want to include Reconstruction in his miniseries on PBS called The Civil War, which burst him into the big time, if you recall. Yeah. All right. But he did not want to include Reconstruction. And I'll tell you why he didn't want to include Reconstruction. Because Reconstruction was a disaster. All right. Uh, exposing Reconstruction would expose the whole lost cause philosophy that Ken Burns, uh, through Shelby Foote, tried to imbue his series with. All right. And, and let me explain in just a few sentences, why it was an utter disaster, all right? The reason it was a disaster is because people like Andrew Johnson, okay, who succeeded Lincoln, you know, essentially did not want to do what you do with a defeated foe. The South had rebelled against the North, okay? They had committed a massive act of treason. All right. And so what needed to be done was it, it, the South needed to be occupied territory. All right. You needed to send in uh, a huge force. Okay. To make sure that these newly liberated black slaves were protected. There were never more than 20,000 troops in the entire Confederacy. All right. Or the former Confederacy. Which is next to nothing. When you got a state the size of Texas, when you got a state the size of Louisiana, how could you possibly, how could you possibly maintain peace and order? Okay. With only 20,000. And most of the time there was less than that. All right. Okay. Also, what should have happened is that every upper level of both the government of the South and the army and navy of the South should have been tried for treason and placed in prison, okay? That didn't happen either. So with this kind of leniency towards what was, in fact, uh, a giant mutiny, you know, this allowed the remnants of the southern government who were still all around, okay, everywhere, okay, and also the military, to organize themselves into what you called and what I, the term I used is the Redeemer Movement. Okay. What was the Redeemer Movement? It was a very, not, it did not just include the Klan. There were three or four other groups like the White Line Group. Okay. You know, these were groups 
that were paramilitary in nature, all right, and their whole philosophy was that we will now extract revenge for our defeat in 1865. We are not going to be occupied territory. We are going to control things, okay? And 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 when I say those words, that's being lenient. These guys were nuts, and I'm I'm not exaggerating at all. It was a really mass uh, pathology of the Redeemer movement that really, really believed that the Republican Party had to be destroyed. Okay, in the South. And all sympathizers had to be shot and killed. They literally said that. There's a part in the part one of my essay, you know, where this riot broke out in Hines County, Mississippi after a debate. Okay, the Redeemers came in with something like 300 men on train, in which clearly was a planned action. It was supposed to be a debate between the Democrats and the Republicans. It turned into a race riot. And people were killed, shot and killed. And the leader of the Redeemer movement literally said that. Okay, we must wipe out the Republican Party. All right. And so, uh, and so this very widespread, and I name about six of these. Okay. Uh, six of these, like the Rosewood incident. I think that was in Florida. Okay. Uh, the Liberty, I think what's called the Liberty, Square incident, I think, or something like that. That was the one in New Orleans. That was a huge one. In that one, the Redeemers brought in 5,000 men. Okay, and they actually won. They defeated the governor's forces of about 3,500, and Ulysses S. Grant had to send in the army. But the insignificant thing, Liberty Square, I think it was. All right, the significant thing about that is none of the men who ran the ad insurrection were arrested and tried for, you know, overthrowing the attempted overthrow of the government. All right. And so what happened, the, the end result of this was that in 1876, the election of 1876, which was a contested election. All right. There was a deal made between the Democrats and the Republicans. All right. And that was they would let Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, the Republican, take the presidency, although he shouldn't have. He actually lost the election. All right. And they would then withdraw. Then they withdraw all the Union armies from the South. So now, instead of only having like 15 to 20,000 men in the South, now there was nobody. All right. And so these incredible, almost unbelievable, shocking atrocities continued throughout. Okay. Like the Colfax massacre. Okay. In New Orleans, like the incredible Tulsa race riot massacre. Okay. Which I think I actually understated how many people died in that one. You probably talked about that one on your show, haven't you? I don't think I have actually discussed that, but there was a lot of focus on the gigantic race riot, uh, well, now more than a year ago, but uh, in 2021 on the 100th 
anniversary of that riot, there was a lot of coverage of it. And it basically, there was a large black middle class, and Tulsa had a, a prosperous African-American community, and it was destroyed by force of arms with great loss of life. That's the best way of putting it. Yeah, that's, that, that one is really shocking when you, when you examine it minutely. All right. Um, but these things simply didn't stop. Okay. He, and, and they actually, you know, got sometimes the worst. Tulsa was probably the worst one of all. Okay. You know, but the Colfax one was, I think 105 people were killed in the Colfax one down in Louisiana. All right. And so, what happened is that as a result of all this violence, okay, what, what essentially happened was the system that took root in the South after the failure of Reconstruction was one of, I would probably call it quasi-feudalism, all right, because as a result of things like the Black Codes, those were state laws um, which discriminated against Afri- newly liberated African Americans. Okay, the African Americans were driven out of the cities and into the countryside. All right, and so that then caused a new economic system. All right, to take place that was maybe one notch above slavery, which was sharecropping. Okay. And sharecropping, sharecropping was essentially a way to keep these newly freed slaves in bondage without actually enslaving them. In other words, it's, it works sort of like this. You, you, you borrowed some land from a former white plantation owner. All right. He advanced you some money. So you get the tools and the seed to go ahead and do some of your own planting. And then whatever you made, you had to pay him back at the end of the harvest season. All right. Well, that just ensured that these guys would never have a farm of their own. And let me add one other thing. The obvious way, the obvious solution to what happened after the Civil War was the solution that General Sherman had, okay, in which I believe he enacted this in in off the coast of South Carolina. What he did and what should have happened is that the plantations should have all been carved up and given over legally to the slaves who had inhabited them before. Okay, that was the only way, I believe, and I've examined this issue a lot. Okay, that was the only way to ensure any kind of step up or any kind of equity. Okay, for what had happened to these people prior to the Civil War. All right. So, but that, 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 that was never really actually on the table. All right. Uh, and, and, and in my opinion, this was a terrific failure of government not to do that. That was, I'm absolutely certain today that that was the only thing that 
could have really prevented what was going to happen, which was this, these conditions of segregation and subjugation economically. All right, because one of the huge problems that there was is that the South had so much invested in the slave plantation system that it was the their most prolific and their most profitable product that they had. And as many writers have said, I've given credit to many of the writers in this essay um, that I that I read. Okay, people like Herbert Aptekert. Okay, he did some economic analysis of this. Okay, and he said after doing this that it was by far and away the biggest value product that they had in the South. There was really not even any second place. All right. That's how reliant the Southern system was on the whole thing of slavery. And that's why they did not want to give it up. So you just switched over to the sharecropping system. All right. And everybody just kind of accepted it, even though when people from the North went down to visit the South, they were kind of shocked at the way that the, 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 the races were separated, okay, that African-American people could only visit a park three days out of the week at certain hours, you know, that they could only uh, be served in a restaurant in a certain far-off corner, okay? Uh, they couldn't even order ice cream out of a restaurant. So what happened was that once these uh, black codes, and maybe I should explain what that means. These were laws that were written by the local mayors, okay, in the bigger cities in the South, which made vagrancy a criminal law, a criminal act. So in other words, what this was designed to do, of course, if an African-American person was in this city and he could not claim that he had a home or was permanently renting a hotel room or something like that, okay, then he risked being arrested, okay, for being a vagabond, all right? Or the other thing is he had to prove that his family, you know, had a, a domicile somewhere in the, now, of course, this, this, this was see-through. This was an, a, a deliberate attempt by the legal authorities in these southern cities to drive these newly liberated slaves out of the city. They did not want them in any kind of productive uh, role in these cities. And they certainly did not want them to get an education. Okay. Okay. To drive them out. Okay, force them back into the countryside and force them into this sharecropper relationship. All right. Okay. And so that, that eventually evolved into what we now call Jim Crow laws. All right. The black codes evolved into Jim Crow laws. All right. Which meant that there was a strict separation 
of the races in the South. And this was no president up until JFK was determined to do anything about what had happened in the South. And even Kennedy was, 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 I noted in the essay, even Kennedy didn't un- really understand what the heck he was up against. Because as a young man, he had actually, you know, we'll talk about that later, how this was covered up through people in the popular media and the Dunning School of, of Scholarship. Okay. Uh, because this was in, this whole thing was made into a colorful charade by certain history professors who wrote about it in textbooks. And I re- vividly remember growing up reading this stuff. You know, there was the, the scalawags, okay, and the carpetbaggers and the derelict, uh, African American politicians who were wasting the South away by being drunk and spending money and lusting after white women. Okay. And you actually had these in history books. And so people really believed that this was what happened. Okay. In, in the South after the civil war, you know, when it really truly wasn't anything like that at all. All right. Okay. And so segregation and sharecropping then was supported by the paramilitary groups called the general name given to them was the redeemers. All right. Okay. And they, they enforced this system through something called the Mississippi plan. Uh, the Mississippi plan was, it consisted of on voting Eve on the day before people were supposed to vote that evening, the redeemers, whether it be the white line guys, you know, or the clan or whatever, they would dress up in white costume and they would be mounted on horseback and they would be carrying torches, all right? And they would go ahead and parade down the main street of the city, all right? And the message, of course, was don't you dare even think of going out to vote tomorrow, all right? Because if you do, all right, you're going to have some very serious physical problems with your home and your health. And there's no way to avoid it. Because, of course, if if the local police authorities were willing to let these guys do that, parade down the center of town in costume and torches, that meant they were part of it, all right, to allow something like that, all right? And so this one, the Mississippi plan was very, very, very effective and keeping down voting rights, okay, in the South. In, in many counties, for example, there were actually more African-American voters than there were uh, white voters. But if you take a look at the tallies, you know, during that time period, you know, that it was ridiculously low. I mean, in some some counties and parishes in Louisiana, that's what they're called, you know, there were actually like zero African-American voters, you know, and a, and a, and a, in a good county, you'd maybe have 10%, even though there were just as many African-Americans or whites. And this was really, the Mississippi plan 
really, really diminished that very short period of time during Reconstruction where you could actually vote in African-American people, all right? It really, really diminished it, all right? Because th there was no hope of doing that once the Mississippi plan was 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 in effect, all right? Uh, and so this went on, this horrible and and illegal, and I, I think it was illegal, you know, to to harass people, to terrorize people. And in some places, of course, he just went out and killed people, you know, or lynched them, all right? Uh, and there were many, many, many of these lynchings, all right? There's no doubt about that, you know? And this went on and on and on for decades on end. No American president did anything about it, all right? And I don't mind saying that at all. You know, like I said, I researched this a lot. You know, none of these presidents did anything. Okay. And you can go all the way, you know, from, from Andrew Johnson all the way to Eisenhower. Okay. All right. People will say Ulysses says Grant actually sent in the army and said, well, that's because he had to. All right. There wasn't any choice. It was either that or they were going to overthrow a whole county government. You know, Grant should have gone ahead and did what he, what he probably imitated his buddy, William Sherman, and sent in an occupying force into the South, but he didn't. And so once you, once you, those troops were withdrawn, then things just went back to where they were before. There was no real change. All right. And so this went on and on and the amazing thing about it, the only people who tried to do anything about this were the radical Republicans, okay, in, in Congress uh, from about 18, I think it was about 1867 to about 1876, all right? They passed a certain laws called like the Freedmen's Bureau where um, people from the North were allowed to go down and try and educate uh, these newly freed slaves and tried to uh, give them things like blankets, okay, and lanterns, etc. All right, uh, and the Freedmen's Bureau, and they passed what's called the Civil Rights Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th, and the Civil Rights Law, I believe, of 1875. As I note in my essay, though, those were all neutralized by the Supreme Court, yeah, that's what I said, the Supreme Court, from about a period of 1880 to 1895, all right? The Republican Party essentially tired of this struggle, and they began to turn themselves to laws that would go ahead and help United States grow into an industrial power. This is a time period, by the way. If you want to see the shift away from Lincoln, all right, and the shift to, you know, a much more business-oriented Republican Party, all right, uh, you know, ultimately ending in somebody like Calvin Coolidge, all right, this was the time period where the Supreme Court 
began to go ahead and deliberately go after the Civil War amendments and neutralize them by qualifying their impact, right? And essentially paving the way, and I'm not exaggerating very much at all, they paved the way for Plessy versus Ferguson. Okay, of course, I think everybody knows this. Plessy versus Ferguson was the 1896 decision that actually said that the separate facilities that the South was designating for these newly liberated slaves, you know, like water fountains, like schools, etc., that these were not necessarily unequal to what the Caucasian facilities were. Now, of course, this is, frankly, malarkey. It's just simply not true. They were different, all right? And so that essentially codified the system of segregation that had grown up, you know, in the South. It was now enshrined in law by the Supreme Court, right? And if you can believe it, and it's but it's true, no president said a word about how bad Plessy versus Ferguson was. And this is even if you include what is popularly referred to as uh, the progressive presidents. And, of course, I'm talking about uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson, and Taft. We call those the progressive presidents. But they didn't do anything. In fact, in the essay, I even note that uh, Woodrow Wilson showed birth of a nation in the White House. And the reason he did it is because D.W. Griffith, the director of the film, used subtitles from some of Wilson's history books. Wilson had been a professor at Princeton before he became president. All right. He actually used them in Birth of a Nation. And Wilson didn't see anything wrong with that at all. All right. Which is really, really, really bizarre. So when I say that Kennedy did more in three years than the previous series of presidents did in almost a century, that's not really hyperbole. It's essentially because these guys did nothing. Or as I said, which is with that Wilson example, they actually made things worse. All right. And they, the, the, the big friend, um, that Teddy Roosevelt, he tried to, um, he tried to, make an example of Booker T. Washington. See, in the intellectual debates that were taking place around the turn of the century, you had two poles of African-American thought. One was Du Bois, W. Du Bois. One was Booker T. Washington. Du Bois eventually started the NAACP. Because he thought that we, that African Americans had to forge a better future for themselves, and doing it by popular education and legal cases was the way to do it. 
Washington didn't think that at all. He thought that they should accept their place and try and advance through the economic system by things like becoming trades, carpenters, or bricklayers, or things like that. And let's not shout about we're being discriminated against. Well, Teddy Roosevelt thought Booker, Booker T. Washington was a really cool guy. Invited him to the White House, take pictures and everything. Calvin Coolidge actually had veterans from the Confederacy parading up and down in front of the White House. And then he had his picture taken with them. All right. So this is how bad things got. And remember, this is in the so-called progressive era. All right. Which, you know, was not really all that progressive. So when I say that nobody did anything about this till Kennedy, I'm really serious about that. Uh, Jim, before we get into discussion of uh, presidents who have enjoyed a more liberal uh, reputation and, and to an extent uh, deserve that, for example, FDR and Harry Truman, uh, and as we then move into uh, the activities of a guy named Charles Hamilton Houston, very important individual, a name that will be new to most people. But I think that there's something that we might want to add at this point in time. And as the chronicle of race relations and the legal foundation for that evolves in this and our next talk, in addition to killing JFK's body, in addition to putting bullets in RFK's head, in addition to doing the same thing to Martin Luther King, there has been another type of intellectual slash academic assassination, uh, no less dramatic, I think, in its manifestation, in which JFK's record, we've, we've spoken at length about what he either did or attempted to do in terms of foreign policy, uh, arms control, and so forth, Cold War policy, but with regard to civil rights, uh, there has been a combination of what we like to benign neglect, but even more, and, and I'll let you uh, determine the extent to which you want to go into some of the authors, whose uh, official calumny, frankly, uh, you chronicle in your essays, there has been a deliberate attempt to murder the Kennedy reputation, meaning it, it not, not just uh, the way people see him, but the actual chronicle, the historical record of what he did and attempted to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that that was more important than the physical murders, but I think we could really see that as following on the actual pulling of the triggers and the putting of the bullets into the men's bodies, because that is perhaps the ultimate political manifestation of the coups d'etat, of the utter lawlessness that uh, we saw in Dallas, that we saw in L.A., that we saw in Memphis. And I, I think that as you unfold the chronicle 
of what took place, what Kennedy did, what people like Charles Hamilton Houston did, how that set the table. We should be aware that the very novelty that so much of this will have for the audience is the product of a deliberate, heinous, intellectual assassination and political uh, assassination of the man's reputation and uh, historical deeds. And, and it's, it's something that I, I think we really need to, to uh, keep in mind. So uh, proceed, Jim, and, and chronicle uh, what began evolving uh, as we go into the 20s and 30s and FDR and Truman and so forth. See, and, and this is, this is, what you said is absolutely true. That there was, without a doubt, a attempt to disguise and to conceal what Kennedy did along with his brother, okay, for those three years. There's no doubt about that at all, period. All right. And I named some of these authors in part two of that essay series. All right. Like, uh, people like Nick Bryant, uh, Margolik, David Margolik. Okay. And Dyson. All right. Who's a favorite of Amy Goodman. All right. And what these guys did is they tried to minimize, sometimes even completely negate all the achievements that the Kennedys had done in that very short period of time, those three years, all right? And it was, I, I, I go through this very thoroughly in the second part of that essay by showing what they left out, all right? See, it's not enough, it's not enough to go ahead and say, well, see, it was really this guy who did it, or this was this guy who did it, or it was really Lyndon Johnson who passed the Civil Rights Act. Okay, if it, it was really Martin Luther King who did the March on Washington. You know, th- those are all false. Those are all false. But this is the kind of thing they propagate. And then they leave out all the things that the Kennedy administration actually accomplished that were, and there's no other way to say this, it was it was unprecedented what he did. Let's give you just one example. In the entire eight years that Eisenhower was in office, okay, they filed a total of 10 civil rights lawsuits in eight years. And I should add this. They... They started two of them on the last day. Two of them on the last day. So I believe that was done just to give it, a, uh, you know, the number 10, a dual-digit number, instead of saying eight, which would mean one a year. All right? Bobby Kennedy did twice as many in his first year. Let me say that again. He filed twice as many lawsuits in his first year than Eisenhower did in two full terms, all right? Bobby Kennedy, by 1963, had quintupled the number of lawyers in the Civil Rights Division, okay, from what Eisenhower did, okay? Five times as many in just a couple of years, 
All right. So there's really utterly, and oh, I should, I should add this in. Everyone knows how monumental the Brown versus Board decision was in 1954, because that overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. Well, right. Very quickly, I want to interject. That was when Governor Orville Faubus of Arkansas. Oh, th- those are two things I want to talk about. Yeah, See, Eisenhower wanted Warren not to vote for the Brown versus Board decision. Very few people know that. He actually advised him not to vote for it. Now, the Arkansas thing, this is something that is utterly amazing. All right. Orville Faubus was the governor of the state. The local uh, NAACP had won a lawsuit, okay, to integrate the local high school, all right, in Little Rock. Faubus was determined that this was not going to take place. So what does he do? He surrounds the school with state troopers, okay, so that get this, they weren't there to protect the African-American students from coming into the school. They were there to keep them out. Now, why is that so horrible? Because if anybody's ever seen the pictures, there was a crowd of white, let's call them rather biased and uh, uh, kind of uh, racist people on the outside of the school. So what you had is you had this spectacle of these African-American kids caught on the one hand with Faubus's troopers not letting them into school and on the other hand with this white racist group harassing them, spitting on them, etc. <coughs> now, now, this went on for days on end. It wasn't just a one-day thing. It went on for days on end. And what does uh, Eisenhower do? He goes golfing at this resort in Maine. He calls Faubus up to talk to him about what he's doing. And Eisenhower thought, well, I just talking to him, I think he got the message that he's going to go ahead and and stop this whole thing from proceeding, okay? Well, when Faubus got back, he decided to do a little trick on Eisenhower. After a couple of days, he did withdraw the troops he had there. All right, but that was it. That was it. He didn't have any protection for those kids who were actually finally made it into school. So this became another spectacle, okay? The kids being harassed in the school by the white people in the school, all right? So when I said this wasn't a one-day thing, this went on, I believe, for 21 or 22 days. Finally, when Eisenhower was completely humiliated, because now this is starting to make national news, It's getting into the papers. It's getting on TV. It's getting in the radio. All right. 
that these white racist people harassing these kids who have a legal court order to go into that school. So finally, after I believe 22 days, 22 days, Eisenhower finally sends in federal troops to protect these kids, all right, after this three-week ordeal, all right? And it was this, Eisenhower was so humiliated, okay, by this whole thing, that he finally sends a civil rights bill up to the hill, okay? The civil rights bill was, I don't care what people like Robert Carl say about it, it was really a little bit of nothing. And the reason that, that Eisenhower sent it up was, number one, to try and heal the beating his image had taken over the Arkansas incident, and number two, to divide the Democratic Party. Him and Nixon knew what they were doing here because their attempt to divide the Democratic Party rested upon this racism that... The Southern Democrats, the Southern Conservative Democrats, would now be split off from the Northern Liberal Democrats. So LBJ stepped in. You know, LBJ stepped in. And he neutered the bill of many of its, let's say, stronger elements. All right. So that we should, we should add that Jim, that, that LBJ at this point, he was the Senate majority leader, yes. not, not that president or VP. Go ahead. Yeah, this is 57. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, so LBJ as the master of the Senate goes ahead and neuters and JFK didn't even want to vote for it. Let me say that again. JFK didn't want to vote for it. And the reason he didn't want to vote for it is because not because he was against, of course he was for civil rights, but he thought this was just you know, a sort of like, uh, you know, like a, a fig leaf. Okay. It wasn't anywhere near powerful enough. So LBJ first had to send a couple of his assistants up to Kennedy's office. And then he went up himself to, <laughs> to lobby JFK to vote for it. All right. And so JFK consulted with his lawyer advisors back in Boston. And they said, look, you know, it's better than nothing, all right? And so Kennedy ended up voting for it, all right? Not because he liked it, but because, you know, the whole idea of a half a loaf is better than none, all right? And so Harris Wolford, who eventually became JFK's advisor on civil rights, he was the main lawyer for the big achievement of that bill, which was a civil rights commission, which was allowed to go around the country and report on on any kind of things like what happened in Arkansas and make recommendations, which Eisenhower did not take any of those recommendations. And Wolford wrote about this in his book. He didn't do anything with any of the recommendations of that uh, of that board. All right. And so then it was uh, slightly expanded in 1960. Now, the reason LBJ did this. Okay, he agreed to go along with this. He had voted against every civil rights bill ever sent up to the Hill for 20 years, from 1937 to 1957. The reason he decided to go ahead and back the Civil Rights Board was, number one, it hardly did anything at all, okay? But secondly, it was because he knew that the reason Richard Russell, 
the senator from Georgia, could never get any national backing for president, which is what he tried to do a couple of times, was because he was pigeonholed as an advocate of Jim Crow, which he was, all right? And so LBJ knew that if he was going to challenge for the presidency and get any backing in the North, he was going to have to do this. And so that is why he did it, all right? All right? And so Kennedy even wrote one of his constituents that he really hoped, because he was complaining about how weak the bill was, I really hope we can get a title, I think it was title three in the next version of this law. So we'll give it some teeth. What was that? That was, that gave the Justice Department the right to actually go into local um, city halls and inspect their voting rights patterns from the material they had there. And this, and this is, this is how smart JFK was. Because he knew that if that part of the law was enacted, which I think it was in the second version in 1960, then the attorney general, whoever he was in the next Democratic administration, could use that to challenge these local facilities on the, on the grounds of discrimination. Okay. And by the way, needs to say, that's exactly what happened when JFK became president. Bobby Kennedy became attorney general and he used that to sue local city. And he actually sued the whole state. He sued the whole state of Mississippi on those grounds. Uh, Jim, I wanted to uh, break in and uh, make a couple of points. Uh, although this is not covered in your essay, to give people an idea of the sentiment about race at this point in time. Uh, there was an iconic jazz album called Mingus Album by uh, jazz great Charles Mingus. And in that album, there was a song called Fables of Faubus, and it is about Governor Orville Faubus of Arkansas. But in that album, again, Jim considered one of the great jazz albums of all time, it is only an instrumental. There was, in fact, uh, there were lyrics to that song, but the song with the lyrics didn't come out till several years later. And at one point, Charlie Mingus is talking to his uh, drummer, Danny Richmond, and asks, you know, why are they so sick and ridiculous, Danny? And at one point, Danny Richmond says, uh, some of you know, Nazi fascist supremacists. So it, the lyrics were quite... Uh, <laughs> Uncompromising, but it's worth noting that Columbia Records that that, uh, put out the album would not permit those lyrics. So the uh, iconic Mingus Alum album only has the instrumental version of that. Uh, The other thing, Jim, uh, one of the many very strong points of your essay is that you give credit uh, in the context of the evolution, not only of civil rights, but specifically uh, the challenge, successful challenge to Plessy versus Ferguson, along the lines of what W.E.B. Du Bois was advocating, to a guy named Charles Hamilton Houston, a name unknown to most Americans, but very important in the evolution of uh, civil rights. I wonder if you would just briefly uh, tell us who he was and what he did. Ch- Charles Houston. I believe, 
is probably one of the greatest figures in the civil rights movement, you know, in the entire 20th century. He doesn't get nearly enough credit for the great accomplishments he made. This guy, he graduated from Amherst, served in World War I, was very disappointed about the racism in the army in World War I. Goes back home, goes to Harvard Law School, writes for the Harvard Law Review, and then dedicates his life to make, to making a African-American Harvard. This was at Howard University. All right, He was going to go ahead and educate a whole fleet of African-American lawyers all right, and then send them down into the South to go ahead and start reversing the negative precedents that the Supreme Court had done in order to neuter civil rights laws. His eventual goal was to destroy Plessy versus Ferguson. He did this step by step, all right, step by step, and filing lawsuits against graduate schools for not allowing, for example, you know, African-American students, or if they did allow them, the African-American students had to be segregated out in the hallway. They couldn't actually be in the class. All right. And so slowly over time, he began to build a countermeasure of precedence so he could challenge Plessy versus Ferguson. All right. And, And this, and, what he achieved, you know, is is so monumental, okay, because I don't have to tell anybody how important the Brown versus Burward decision really was in history, all right? And so his lawyers, unfortunately, he passed away before the epical Brown versus Board decision was pronounced. But that in every in every every African American attorney who fought on that case, all right, will tell you that it's owed to Charles Houston. All right, he was the guy who did it. You know, I said in the essay, if it was up to me, I would knock down every Confederate statue in the South and put a statue of him there. And uh, again, that, that is a name that is unknown to so many people, and yet he is and, a and it's And it's a disgrace. It's a, it shows you how bad history textbooks are, you know, both Sergeant in Marshall said college. Sid Marshall said of Hamilton, all we're doing is carrying his bags. Unquote. Right, right. That's exactly correct. And uh, again, you, you, you give Charles Hamilton Houston his due. And uh, that, again, is one of the many Spawn points of your essay. Then we've only got about four minutes left in this program. Um, we should uh, note that we have not really, in, in uh, the bulk of our discussion, even moved up into Kennedy's administration. Uh, and then we're just a few minutes left. You want to uh, you know, talk about Bud? You know, Kennedy's at King.com, uh, Black Op Radio, et cetera, or do you think, is there a point that you could squeeze in in just these couple of minutes? Well, what, what, what I think one important point that will kind of bridge the gap, okay, is that in the interim between when Kennedy was elected 
and when Kennedy took office. Harris Walford wrote a 33-page essay, all right, because he was the civil rights advisor for the campaign. And in that essay, he outlined all the things that John's, excuse me, that, that uh, Eisenhower didn't do, but all the things that Kennedy should do, all right, now that he was going to be taking office. And he specifically said, you will not be able to pass an omnibus civil rights law in your first year. He said, you probably won't even do it in your second year. And the reason for this is very easy to understand. This was because the Southern Bloc in the South, which had so many powerful positions in the Senate, especially, all right, would run a filibuster against it. And you will not be able to overcome that filibuster in your first or second year. You're going to have to build momentum, make it a public issue, make it a judicial issue. You're going to have to attract a lot of headlines, a lot of news stories to activate the public. And then maybe in your third year, you might be able to actually make some headway on it. Now, Dave, I don't have to tell you, that is exactly what happened. I mean, Walford's 33-page essay was the outline that Kennedy used to tear down Jim Crow. It, it was indeed, and I'm thinking too, uh, although we, we have a, a, a great many more topics to discuss, something people want, might want to keep in the back of their minds is the number of Dallas policemen who belong to the Ku Klux Klan. So, uh, when, when, when we look at the actual, uh, subjugation of truth vis-a-vis the forensic details of Kennedy's killing, uh, as one Dallas cop said, we just treated it like another South Dallas M-word killing. You're, that's exactly, I'm so glad you brought that up. The guy you're talking about there is Lavelle. Okay. And he was a guy who was escorting Oswald to the car when Oswald got killed. Also, Bill Alexander, the district attorney guy who uh, prosecuted Jack Ruby, he said more or less the same thing. He said something like, who gives a pile of bird dung of how JFK got his head blown off in Dallas? That's how racist these guys were. Okay. And the entire South was like that. Yes, indeed. Uh, Jim, we're almost out of time. Uh, Kennedy's and King, well, let me, let me step in just a sec. Uh, www.kennedysandking.com is Jim's website. Uh, not only, uh, tremendous amounts of information about the killings of, uh, both Kennedy's and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, but the essays that we are talking about here. And again, I would characterize them as a masterpiece, uh, are on that website. Uh, tell us about Black Op Radio and, uh, about J.A.P. Well, Division. why, why don't, why don't you read off the title of the essay so they can, they can punch it in? Uh, you know, I don't have that with me, actually, the actual title. Okay. Um, it's something like the know, Kennedys and Civil Rights, how the, uh, how the MSM distorts, uh, the picture. And it's p- punch in my name and that title and you'll be able to find it. All right. I'll put that and the link in the written description for the right. show. So let, let me just, since we're running out of time, let the book JFK Revisited is by me with a introduction by Oliver Stone. 
and it's the annotated screenplays to both uh, films. That is JFK Revisited and JFK Destiny Betrayed. All right, there's about 500 footnotes in the book. And also there's excerpts from the interviews. We did about 30 of them that did not make it into the film because of time limitations. All right. So it's a, I, I really don't like to brag a lot about my work, but it's a very good book. Okay. There's a lot of in, new information in it. So if you mm-hmm. go ahead and pick that up either online or at your bookstore. And it will complement the two and four hour versions of the documentary. Jim is also a semi-regular on Black Ops Radio out of Vancouver. This concludes for the record program number 1285. Interview number 22 with Jim Diagenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on January 27th of the year 2023. For Jim Diagenio, this is Dave Emerson saying thanks for listening.